All right, grab your programs. This week we are on a joy ride. A joy ride actually all summer as we go through the book of Philippians. Um, Philippians is one of my favorite books. This is the fourth time I've taught through Philippians in about 30 years. It's one of the happiest, probably the happiest book in the Bible, the most joyful book in the Bible. The words joy, rejoice, glad, happy in some translations appear in its various forms 15 times in these four short uh, chapters. And what is amazing to me that Paul writes the most joyful, the most happy book of the Bible, and he writes it from prison in Rome. Paul was in a Roman prison for two years. Um, So how you could write the most joyful book, how to have joy in your life from prison, is just a testament to the to the life and character of the Apostle Paul. You know, one of the most common mistakes we make as human beings, at least as Americans, is we fall into this trap of what I call when and then thinking. Do you know what when and then thinking is? Most of us have dealt with this our whole life. Where we think to ourselves, in fact, we even say it sometimes out loud, when I get to such and such, then I'll be happy. When this happens, then I'll be happy. And we've been saying this, since we were kids. When she says yes to prom, then I'll be happy. Or when she says yes, or when she says yes, when somebody says yes, then I'll be happy. Right? Maybe that was your story. When I get into college, then I'll be happy. Have you ever met anybody in college? They're stressed out. You know, well, when, when I get married, then I'll be happy. In fact, they even tell us, you'll be happily they lived happily ever after to which i always want to say do you not know any married people yeah you know we all fell for that right happily ever after how about this one when we have a baby then we'll be happy oh you'll be sleep deprived not a lot of happy going around right i mean eventually we are happy how about when i get a career then i'll be happy or, I love this one, all of you moms of preschoolers know this one, when my kids get in school, then I'll be happy. You know, and then eventually you're into, when, when my kids graduate, if they graduate, I'll be happy. <laughs> when my kids move out of the house, then I'll be happy, you know, way after college. When and then thinking. When this happens, when I retire, then I'll be happy. I don't know how many people I've heard say that. So in Philippians... Chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Paul talks about how to be happy no matter what. Paul talks about how do you enjoy, how to enjoy life no matter what is happening. No matter what's going on in your life. And remember, he's writing this from a prison in Rome. But the last four years of Paul's life were very difficult. They were rough. Paul and all of his missionary journeys experienced... All kinds of troubles, all kinds of obstacles. For the last four years of Paul's life, he spends in prison. The two years before he got to Rome, he was in jail in Caesarea uh, under false charges. He was was arrested on trumped-up charges, thrown in jail two years. Then he appeals and they decide, all right, we're going to send you to Rome. And he was happy about that because Paul's plan, we'll talk about it, It was always been, I'm going to go to Rome. God gave him a vision of going to Rome. So he's on his way to Rome, 
and the ship that he was in experienced on the Mediterranean experienced like a hurricane, and the ship crashes and goes down. And he goes ashore on pieces of the ship. And he's on an island shipwrecked with some people there, and the island we find out from his journey is inhabited by poisonous snakes, and wouldn't you know it, he even gets he gets bit by one of these poisonous snakes. I mean, his last couple of years of life, just getting to Rome was was horrible. Well, then he's in prison for two years, and he's kind of under a house arrest thing, so that because he's such an important prisoner, they chain a guard to him, and they change the guard every four hours. Every four hours, 24 hours a day for two years, he has, he has no privacy at all. And Paul has every reason to be bitter. He has every reason to be unhappy. He has every reason to be depressed, to have a pity party, to have a woe is me, poor me. Look at my, my life's worse than a country record, a country song. Instead, he ends up writing this letter that becomes the book of Philippians, the happiest book of the Bible on happiness and joy. I'm going to read you the second half of Philippians chapter 1. We read verses 1 through 11 last week. I'm going to read you verse 12 through 30, and then we'll kind of pick these apart and kind of learn some lessons from them. Paul begins in verse 12 saying, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. These words, these verses are also on your worship guide. They'll be on the screen behind me and, of course, uh, they'll be on your devices if you're watching from home or out in the uh, out in the pavilion. Where was he? He says, and as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of those chains, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach out of envy and rivalry. He's talking about people outside of the prison, obviously, there in Rome. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me, while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm, gonna, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire... To depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. So I said last week that this is a very warm, personal note to Paul's friends, the people that he loves, from the church in Philippi, which he planted. Remember, he was a church planter who became the church, the first pastor of this, of this town, the church that he started in Philippi. And in this message, he covers how to maintain your joy, how to stay happy, how to enjoy life, in spite of everything that was going on in his life, in spite of things that he never planned. And the key verse to this whole passage is verse 27, where he admonishes us and the people that he's writing to, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're going to look at how to enjoy life no matter what happens in your life. How to remain joyful, how to remain happy, how to enjoy life no matter what this world throws at you. Even if you're in prison. And Paul models four habits for us. And I want you to jot these down. These are the things, these are the habits, these are the steps, these are the, these are the systems, these are the things that I've got to ingrain in my life if I'm going to learn how to enjoy life no matter what happens, if I'm going to learn to remain joyful, remain happy. The first thing I want you to write down is no matter what happens, I can enjoy life if I look at every problem from God's viewpoint or from God's perspective, you could write in. If I look at every problem that I have from God's viewpoint and see them the way he sees them or his perspective, I can experience joy. I can enjoy life no matter what happens in life. Joyful people have a larger perspective. They have a bigger worldview. They see the big picture. When we don't see the big picture, when we just focus on how is this impacting me? How is my problem affecting me? When I don't see things from God's point of view, I get discouraged. I get frustrated. I get unhappy. And the reason we get unhappy is because we don't see what God does. We don't see his plan. We don't see him at work in our lives. The truth is that no matter what is going on in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, some of you, there's some good things happening in your life. Some of you, there's some really bad things happening in your life. Some of you, there's some, it's ugly right now in your life. And the truth is, for most of us, it's a mixed bag. It's not like everything is bad and dark and ugly. And it's almost never like everything is rosy and just awesome all the time. 
usually it's a mixed bag. It's like things are good in your finances, but man, your relationships are in the toilet. Or things are really good in your relationships right now, but you know, I don't have two nickels. Inflation's killing me. Or things are really good with your kids, but your health is, is on the fritz. Or your health happens to be really good, you're the epitome of healthiness, but your kids won't talk to you. For most of us, it's a mixed bag. It's never all bad or all good. So we can all relate to this. God says, you know what? Even whether it's the good, the bad, or the ugly in your life, I can work all of that into my plan. God can use that too. You say, God can use the bad? Yep, God can use the ugly? Yep. What about my sins? God can use my sins? Oh, yeah, he can use your sins. In fact, he has a lot to work with for most of us. There's a lot of sins. He can, he's working. You know, my faults, again, lots of material. Yep, he can use your faults. What other people do, the decisions they make that impact me, yes, God uses what they do, the decisions that they make, even though they're sinful decisions maybe, and he factors all, he works all of that. He says, I can fit all of that into my plan for your life. And Paul knew this. In verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me these last few years in prison, what has happened to me, has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, we know, looking back 2,000 years, how much it advanced the gospel. Let me explain what's going on here. Ever since the day that Paul met Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, Ever since Paul became a Christian and a Christ follower, he had one big dream, and that dream was to preach in Rome. Rome was the center of the universe. It's called the Eternal City now. Rome was the largest, most powerful city in the largest, most powerful empire of all time at that time. And Paul had already preached in two of the three biggest cities In Rome, not only had he preached, but he was in Ephesus for two to three years and planted a church there. That's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Then he went to Antioch. Three different times he went to Antioch over an 18-month period and planted churches, the church in Antioch. He had already been to Ephesus. And he had already been to dozens of cities all over Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, Italy. He says, but I want to preach in Rome. It's the capital of the empire. It's the most powerful, the most prestigious, the most strategic city in the world. There was no nation more important than the Roman Empire, and there was no city more important or more powerful than Rome. So Paul's dream was to share Christ at the very center of the universe at that time. And that's what he wants to do. He's thinking, I want to go to Rome. I want to preach the gospel. I want to rent out the Colosseum. We're going to have like a a Billy Graham crusade. We're all going to sing just as I am. You know, those buses will wait for you. You just keep coming down front. You ever been to Billy Graham crusade? He says that every time. But God had another idea. God's like, yes, Paul, you're going to Rome. But we're not renting out the Colosseum. We're not going to have a revival. Paul, you're going as a prisoner. And I'm going to make you a royal prisoner of Caesar. Anybody know who the Caesar was at that time when Paul was in prison? A guy named Nero. One of the vilest, evilest people that have ever lived ever on anyone's list. 
I mean, we look at Hitler and we look at Stalin and we look at some of these guys that we think they're so bad. Listen, Nero was was so much worse than anyone we we have ever experienced in the last hundred years. Paul is a prisoner of Nero. And as a royal prisoner, he has a royal guard chained to him 24 hours a day. And he gets to talk to all kinds of people that are rotated through that he would have never gotten a chance to speak to. They change the guard every four hours. Now, I'm sure there were lots of them who had to repeat their duty roster, their schedule, to be chained to him. But uh, I did the math. Over a two-year period, Paul had... 4,380 changing of the guards. 4,300 people that were chained to him. Many of them over and over again. They hey, Charlie, how you doing? Hey, have you thought about what we were talking about since last time? My question is always, who is the real prisoner here? Because I imagine, I imagine those guards are like, they're going, hey, man, can you cover my shift? And like, no, I got to be chained to him in 16 hours from now, man. Are you crazy? I, that guy can talk and talk and talk, can he? And Paul is, if you know his personality, he's a little, he's a choleric. He's, he's kind of pushy. He was a great debater. He loved to talk and to preach and to witness and to debate. Who is the captive audience here? Paul's talking to all of Caesar's entire court, all of the guards in the whole palace. God says, this is my plan. You want to go to the big city and have a national crusade, I'm going to put you in prison. There are two results that we know for sure on the advancement of the gospel. In chapter 4, we're going to learn that within two years, some of Nero's own family, some of the royal family had become Christians, and they had become Christians through these, these guards as Paul had witnessed to them and they had professed faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. They then told that story to some of Nero's own royal family and they become Christians because Paul was in prison. And the second thing that we know, in fact, we're reading it right now, that because Paul was forced to sit still for a couple of years, that's hard for some of us to do, right? We're so busy, 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 doing, doing, doing so many things for God. I think sometimes God just says, hey, just sit, just be, be still and know that I am God. Paul, he is still for two years. And during those two years, he writes most of the New Testament. Hmm, wonder which had a bigger impact, big citywide crusade or sitting down and writing First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and on and on and on. First and Second Timothy, First and Thess- Second Thessalonians, most of the New Testament. And this is why Paul says, look, I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that even though this has happened to me, me being in prison, this has helped to spread the good news. He says, I've got my plan. I wanted to come and and preach in Rome, but God had a bigger plan. He says, I can be happy because I see what God is doing through my problems. Anytime we have a problem, and we're going to have many, many, many problems as opportunities for this. Anytime we have a problem and it's starting to get us down, it's starting to make us unhappy, we need to do what Paul does, and we need to learn to see the problem from God's perspective, from his point of view. 
What is God doing here? How is God at work in my problem? What's the bigger picture, God? Show me your perspective, God. And then we'll be able to face that problem in faith, whether it's divorce, whether it's cancer, whether it's kids on drugs, whether it's financial, whether it's no matter what you're going through. If you could say, God, show me what you're doing here. God, help me to have your perspective. When we face a problem with faith, it has two impacts, two things will happen. I want you to jot these down. Whenever we go through any of these problems in life as believers and we face them with faith, the first thing it is, is it's a a witness to unbelievers. There are unbelievers in your office. There are unbelievers in your school. There are unbelievers on your block. There are unbelievers even within your own family. They are watching how you respond to to the problems. They are watching how we respond to the regular problems of our life. In fact, some of them are kind of mean about it. They're like, oh, you're a Christian. You think you're so much better than me. Look, you got marriage problems. Look, you got teenager problems. Look, you got financial problems. Look, you got... And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from any problems. Have you not met any Christians? Holy cow. We got plenty of problems. All it does is it helps us to have God's perspective on our problems. And it gives us a power to... To face them in faith. And when you face your problems with faith, it is an encouragement to unbelievers. It shows them, man, this Jesus thing is real. Verse 13 says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. I guess so. He witnessed over 4,000 times to whoever was chained to him. So it's a witness to unbelievers. The second thing is when I face a problem with faith, it's also an encouragement to believers. When you are open about your problems, when you share with your small group, hey, we're going through this health situation with my family, with my children, with my parents, with my, with my siblings. We're going through this situation, and they pray for you, and you pray for them, and they see you face these problems in faith. It's an encouragement to other believers. Philippians 1.14, he says, Because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and Dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So it's a witness to unbelievers. It's an encouragement to believers. Have you ever thought that God might want to use the problem that you're going through right now if you would face it with faith, if you would face it trusting him for these same reasons that there are unbelievers around you that it could be a witness to and there are believers around you that it could be an encouragement to? If we look at our problems that way, It changes our perspective in a major way. The second habit, the second thing that I can do in my life, if if I can enjoy life no matter what happens, if this, if I never let others control my attitude. This is a big one because we allow people to make us mad. We allow people to rob our joy. We allow people to wreck our day. We allow people to ruin our perspective. This is a good example that Paul gives right here in this passage that I can enjoy life no matter what happens in my life if I never let other people control my attitude. I don't let them decide whether I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be joyful, I'm going to enjoy life or not. In verse 15 to 17, Paul describes... Four kinds of people. I think I've given these to you. It's good. 
four different, three of these people are bad kinds of people. One is a good kind of, of people. He says there's four kinds of people that we all have in our life. You have them in your life, I have them in my life. Just like Paul did. He says there are critics who are slandering me, who are creating all kinds of controversy. There are comrades, those are my friends. He says there are, there are competitors who are preaching Christ out of rivalry. And he says, there are conspirators. Those are people who just want to make my problems worse. They want to rub it in. They want to kick me while I'm down. They're my enemies. Notice these verses in verse 15. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Circle that word rivalry in verse 15 and the number 2 there. The word rivalry there in the Greek means they love to argue. Have you ever met anybody who loves to argue? Are you on Facebook? Do you have Twitter? It seems like the whole social media craze has brought all of the I love to argue people out of the woodwork. And they love to argue. They love conflict. They love creating controversy. They... They're contentious, they're divisive, they're critical. They say the critic's motive is usually envy. When people are criticizing something, it's usually something that they're, they're jealous of. And we've got to work through this. We've got to deal with these people. Would you agree that few things can rob you of your joy or rob you of your happiness more than being criticized? You have people at work who criticize you. You have people on your block. They criticize you. They criticize your yard. They criticize your your car. They criticize your kids. Oh, they love criticizing your kids. You have people in your own family that criticize you. The choices you make, where you spend your money, how you vacation, what school you send your kids to, what clothes you allow your kids to wear. Oh, people criticize parenting and people get their hackles up. All you got to do is even... There are critics in our lives, and when they criticize you, it kind of makes your stomach kind of, kind of churn, kind of gives you that, that feeling. Let me, let me just say, if you're on social media, you, you cannot put anything on social media without, in, without it being criticized. Have you noticed this? You just try it. I dare you to just post something like, good morning. That's controversial enough. Two words, good morning. Some of it, it's, not, it's not good where I'm at. You, you know, it's not good everywhere. What do you mean good? How good do you think it is? Is it even morning? You know, they will criticize any little thing. You put anything on there and people are like, oh, it must be good from where you're at, but you don't have my life. Right? It doesn't matter what you put. You, you put, you put, no matter what you put, you are inviting all the critics in fact, you just go, delete, 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 delete all those people. Okay? In Jesus' name, of course. <laughs> Pastor, you've got to be nice to them. You can't, you can't delete them. You know, I know. I don't delete them. And, and, um, but here, here's what you've got to realize. Because sometimes we go to Facebook we go, and we want people's approval. And people aren't going to approve. The worst thing you can ever do is go in there and say, what do you all think of this? You know, how, what do you think of this outfit? What do you think of this situation? What do you think? Man, you'll get all kind of, you, you won't get real help. You'll get all kinds of criticism. But God has wired us in a way where we want to be liked by people. He's wired us a way where we need love. We want love. 
and that's okay. Where we want approval, and that's okay. But here's what you have to understand. You're wired in a way, God's wired each of us, that we want to be loved by him. We want to have his approval. And we get confused and we apply that to everybody else. And here's what I want you to write down. If we could get this, if we could apply this, appropriate this in our life, it would, it would help us to enjoy life a lot, a lot more. We would have so much more enjoyment in life. Just write this next thing down. I don't need other people's approval to be happy. Will you write that down? I don't need other people's approval to be happy or to enjoy life or to have joy. You are as happy as you choose to be. You enjoy life as much as you choose to enjoy life. You don't have to depend on other people in order to have a happy, joyful life. In fact, the truth is, I don't know whose approval you're trying. Sometimes people spend their whole life trying to get their parents' approval. It's nice to have your parents' approval, but you don't need your parents' approval. In fact, I would submit to you that, you know, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, or if you're like me in your 50s, look, if you haven't gotten their approval by now, you ain't going to get it. Now, I know some of you are already critics. They're all like, oh, ain't, ain't a word. No, ain't isn't a word. Okay? If you haven't gotten your parents' approval, you're probably never going to get it. And you don't need it. In order to enjoy life, in order to be happy, in order to have joy. In fact, the opposite is also true. If you spend your life trying to get the approval of other people, you'll be miserable your whole life. They will control how much happiness is in your life. Paul was modeling for us here. Never let other people control your attitude. Some of these people are just jealous. Some of these people are just quarrelsome. Some of these people are just cranky and criticizing everything. In the next verse, he talks about the good guys. These are his friends. These are his comrades. He says, the latter do so out of love. That's the real reason they're sharing the good news. They do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. He says, those people bring me joy, obviously. Then in verse 17, he talks about competitors. He says... In verse 17, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. Circle that phrase, selfish ambition. The people who are stirring up trouble for you, they're doing it out of selfish ambition. Those are the people who are ego-driven. You know how to tell if somebody's ego-driven? They're always putting other people down to build themselves up. They feel compelled to point out everybody's faults, to put them down. And if we don't deal with this in our own lives, if we don't recognize these people and go, oh, whoa, 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 I'm not going to react to them, they will rob our happiness. They will rob our joy. They will cause us to not enjoy life the way that God wants us to. Paul says there's, even in ministry, there's competitors. They are selfish. They are ambitiously and insincerely preaching the good news. The second part of verse 17, he talks about his enemies, the conspirators. He says, these are people that just want to mess them up. So we're going to have all four of these kinds of people in our life. We're going to have critics, we're going to have comrades, we're going to have competitors and conspirators. Don't let them rob you of your joy. Don't let them rob you of your happiness. 
And I want you to see Paul's attitude. He says, look, I'm in prison. I'm already down. They're kicking me while I'm down. The critics, the conspirators, and the competitors. He says, but here's my response to them. In verse 18, he says, but what does it matter? Circle that. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. I love that. I'm not going to let people control my attitude. There are people criticizing me for what I'm doing. There are people competing with me for what I'm doing. There are people who are conspiring to make sure that I fail at what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. What I'm going to do is focus on Christ. And I am choosing to be happy. I will continue to be happy, he says. I'm not going to let people steal my joy. So the cool thing for us to apply, to realize here, is if I want to stay happy in life, if I want to continue to enjoy life, even if I'm in prison, I've got to look at every problem that I have from God's point of view. I've got to realize he's going to work it all out for good. He's working his plan. And it's going to be, if I face these problems of faith, it's going to be a, a witness to unbelievers. It's going to be an encouragement to fellow believers. And then I just say that no matter what, the critics... The people who are complainers and conspirators, competitors, they are not going to stop me from being happy and enjoying life. I'm going to keep my focus on Jesus. And then in the last couple of verses, we read that Paul explains, in verse 29 and 30, he explains why we can enjoy life no matter what. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Underline or circle, suffer for Him. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like that part. But also to suffer for Him since you are going through the same struggle as you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is saying it is a privilege to suffer for doing the right thing. Great is your reward in heaven. Sometimes you tell the truth. You do the right thing and you suffer. Sometimes you go the extra mile. You serve them well. And you suffer. Sometimes you love, they return hate, and you suffer. Paul says it's a privilege to suffer for doing what's right. Great is your reward in heaven. It says it's a privilege to believe in Christ and a privilege to suffer with Christ. Because you're most like Jesus when somebody's nailing you to the cross. Now, that's no fun. We don't want to be criticized like that. We don't want to be attacked like that. We don't want to be crucified like that. But you are most like Jesus when people are attacking you for your faith. In fact, it's been said you're most like Jesus when you respond the way Jesus did. Jesus, when he was attacked the night that he was betrayed, when he stood before Pilate and Herod in six illegal trials that night, and every time they, they accused him, Jesus says he remained silent. He didn't even defend himself. We are most like, 
Sometimes we are most like Christ when we zip it. When we don't say anything. Now, that's hard to do. And sometimes we feel persecuted when we lash out. You know, what it doesn't say here is it's a privilege when you're suffering for Christ because you did what's right. It's not a privilege to suffer for Christ when you're just a jerk. Sometimes Christians are just a jerk on social media. Have you noticed that? They fire back and you just like, oh, my gosh, that guy goes to my church. Uh, I hope he doesn't invite people to VBS next, you know. And I'm like, I'm like your pastor, and you've obviously forgotten your friends with me because you're lasting this person. And I feel like going, I want to comment with prayer signs, you know, prayer hand, but I'm thinking that might just add gasoline to the fire. So just know when you're a jerk on social media, I am praying for you. I just don't bring it up because I don't want to call you out. Yet sometimes we feel like, well, people are all against me because I'm a Christian. Well, because you're a jerk of a Christian. That's why you're bringing that on yourself. That's not like persecution for doing what's right. That's persecution for being a knucklehead. So he says, I'm not going to let other people rob my happiness. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to keep doing what's right. And I'm going to try to see my problems from God's perspective, his viewpoint, and how I'm going to try to face those problems in faith so it impacts believers and non-believers. And I'm not going to let what other people say or what they do deviate me or move me away from, from my happiness. Third thing, third habit. The next three or four verses there, we learn that I can trust God. I can be happy, I can enjoy life no matter what, if I trust God to work things out. Whatever problem you're going through, even if you're in prison in Rome, you can trust God. God has a plan. He knows right where you are. He is working out His plan in your life. You can trust God. But trusting God with my problems doesn't mean I try to fix it. I try to solve it. I try to control all the variables. When things are falling apart, I don't try to put them all back together. Instead, I give him the broken pieces. I surrender like the song that we sang. And I let God put them back together. That's the faith factor. You've heard me say this before. When we're going through a problem in life, we have two choices. We can worry or we can worship. I can worry and focus on my problems, or I can worship and focus on my Savior. And when I turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful faith, face, then the cares of this world grow strangely dim. I can trust God to work things out. I can worship or worry. I can Pray or panic. By the way, if we would worship, we'd have a lot less to worry about. If we'd pray, we'd have a lot less to panic about. Philippians 1, 18 and 19 is the faith factor. Paul writes and he says, Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Circle, I will. Oh, I didn't give you that verse there, under there. Yeah, you got to go all the way up and hunt it down. Okay, you... Why don't you just write I will next to it? Nancy told me that wasn't in there. 
He says, I will continue to rejoice. In verse 18 and 19 up top. It's an act of the will. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I didn't include that verse down there, but if you so chose for extra credit to hunt that down up in verse 19 up top, there's four things I would have had you circle. Four things that give Paul strength to help him stay positive. This is how we rejoice. He says, I know. I know that God is working on this. I have God's perspective. I know. I'd have you circle pray, prayer. I have people praying for me. Remember how we talked about last week how much of a comfort it is to know that people are praying for you? I have your prayers. Then I would have your circle spirit. It says I have the Holy Spirit helping me. And then the last, I would, I would circle the word delivered. I have faith that God is at work. So here's, here's what he says. He said, I have, I know, I have God's perspective. He says, I have your prayers. I have the Holy Spirit. And I have faith. I have God's perspective. I have your prayers. I have the Holy Spirit. And I have faith. Therefore, I'm going to continue to rejoice. It's my choice to rejoice. Will you write that in there? It's my choice. If you have God's perspective, if you have people praying for you, if you have the Holy Spirit and you have faith, you have everything you need to choose to rejoice in spite of the problems. All right, finally, number four, I can enjoy life no matter what happens, if I look at it from God's viewpoint, if I don't let other people control my attitude, if I always trust God to work things out, and number four, I can always enjoy life if I stay focused on my purpose and not my problem. If I stay focused on my purpose and not my problem. This is hard for us to do. We get focused on our problems. God says, I need you to worship me, and I need you to trust me. Don't let everybody else impact you. Instead, focus on your purpose, not your problem. And if I do that, I can enjoy life even when my life is falling apart. Paul says, I stay focused on my purpose, not my problem. Picture this. Paul's old at this time. He's like my age, okay? He's mid-50s to mid-60s. We don't know exactly how old Paul was. And we know that he's at the end of his life. He's waiting for execution. These are not normally happy times. He hasn't aspired his whole life. Well, I can't wait till I spend the last four years of my life, my golden years, in jail awaiting execution. And everything has been taken away from Paul. His freedom has been taken away. His friends have been taken away. His... Ability to go to all the churches that he's planted all over that area has been taken away. His privacy is even taken away. He's got a guard chain to him. But there's one thing they can't take away from Paul. They can't take away his purpose. His ability to make choices. He says, you know what, I'm going to stay focused on my purpose, even though they've taken everything else away from me. What was Paul's purpose? Paul's purpose was serving God by serving people. 
Serving God by serving others. And then Paul goes into talking about this kind of conundrum that he's facing. That part of him is ready to be done and go to heaven. I've run a good race. I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to go be with Jesus. I'm ready to leave this world behind and go on to much, much better. And the other half of him is, hey, I want to stay here and continue to suffer and serve the Lord to help other people. In verse 22 it says, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Remember, he's old and he's in prison. He's waiting execution. He says, if I continue to work, I can continue to do worthwhile. If I continue to live, I can do worthwhile work. But I'm just not so sure. I'd, I'd just rather go to heaven. He says, I'm torn between these two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain here in the body. He's saying, look, I'm staying not for my sake, but for your sake. He says, convinced of this, convinced that it's better for me to stay alive and continue serving. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, this is just amazing to me. Paul is such an amazing person. That he doesn't just have a purpose for living. He's got a purpose for dying. We talk about our purpose in life. Do we also have a purpose in death? Paul says, it doesn't matter whether I live or I die. I've got a purpose. I've got a purpose either way. On earth, my purpose is to serve God by serving others. In fact, how do we serve God on earth? You know the only way you can serve God on earth is by ser- God's invisible. The only way you can serve Him is by serving people in Jesus' name. So he says, while I'm alive... My purpose is simply to serve Christ by serving people. In fact, it's so important. It's one of the reasons we're left here on this earth. Why doesn't God just take us to heaven right away and become a Christian? Why can't we just start heaven tomorrow? Well, there must be a reason. Why? Because, no, you're here to serve others. You're here to grow in Christ. You're here for me to develop your character and to be a witness to the world and encouragement to believers. That's your purpose in being here. But Paul says, look, Either way, I win. If I stay here, I'm used by God. He's using my life to be a witness to unbelievers and encouragement to believers. But if I die, I get to go be with Jesus. Either way, I win, he says. Actually, it would be selfishly, it would be better for me if I just go ahead and die. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go to heaven. He says, but I'll stay alive for your sakes. I don't want us to miss this because this is a secret that I think a lot of people, well, most people in life make this mistake and are miserable because of it. But a lot of believers are also miserable because they miss this too. Because people think, especially in our culture, people think that happiness, joyfulness, enjoying life comes from self-gratification. If I just get more possessions, I'll be happy. When I get this, then I'll be happy. If I just have more pleasure when I experience this, then I'll be happy. If I just get more position, more salary, when I achieve this, then I'll be happy. When and then thinking. If I just get better stuff for me, then I'll be, I'll enjoy life more. But that doesn't work because 
the path to happiness, the path to enjoyment of life in joy is not self-gratification. It's actually self-sacrifice. Not self-gratification. Paul says the reason why I'm happy is as long as I'm happy, I'm giving my life to help others. Are we doing that? Are we living for us or, or are we living for others? Are we living for ourselves or are we living for Christ? If you live your life for yourself, I can promise you, you will not enjoy life the way God intended for you to enjoy the abundant life. Because enjoyment doesn't come from status. It doesn't come from salary. It comes from service. It comes from giving your life away. That's why it's so important in our church. We have a whole class, class 301, how to discover your ministry, how to discover your shape for how you serve other people. It's the reason God has created you and left you here. It's part of his big plan. Until we understand that, life's not going to mean much. Enjoyment doesn't come from self-gratification. It comes from self-sacrifice. One last verse. As Paul summarizes his life. He summarizes his purpose in this one verse. Very famous verse. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let me ask you this. For me to live is Christ... If someone came up to you and had you fill in the blank for that sentence, for me to live is blank, what would go in your blank? We would like to say, for me to live is Christ. But if we're really honest, would, would it be something else? Would it be, for me to live is entertainment? For me to live is sports? For me to live is money? For me to live, it could be good. It could be so. For me to live as family, some of us would say that. Some of us, for me to live as friends, those are good things. But nothing deserves number one in our life other than probably the God who made us, the Savior who died for us and gave us our life. For me to live is Christ. Well, however you fill out that blank will determine your level of enjoyment in life and your level of happiness. For me to live is fill in the blank. And there's nothing wrong with money and fame and pleasure and possessions. There's nothing wrong. But none of those things rise to the level of number one in our life. They just don't deserve first place in our life. Because you weren't created to just make a bunch of money, use up a bunch of natural resources, die, and leave it to your heirs. That's not God's plan for your life. That's just a small part of his plan for your life. God has much bigger plans and a much bigger impact that he wants to make with your life. He has a much greater purpose for you. For me to live is Christ. Wouldn't it be great if we could live up to that sentence, that verse? It's the only answer that leads to a lifetime of enjoyment and happiness. As we pray, if you'll bow your head with me, I'm going to pray this prayer and I'm going to ask God to help us. Why don't you just pray and say, Dear Jesus, me too. Me too. Yes, that's for me too. 
I want to start by saying, dear Jesus, you know that we often let circumstances determine our happiness. Let's make that personal. Say, dear Jesus, you know I often allow circumstances to determine my happiness. And you just think to yourself, me too. So starting today, I want to practice these four secrets that Paul modeled. Help me to look at every problem in my life from your viewpoint, Lord. I want to handle my problems in faith in a way that is a witness to non-believers and an encouragement to believers. And Lord, help me to remember that what others say and what others do, it does not control my happiness or my joy unless I allow them to. And as for things that can happen that I don't understand, I can't figure out, that confuse me, Lord, I want to trust you to work it all out for your good. And help me to stay focused on your purpose for my life, not my problems. And God, I want to use the rest of my life to serve you by serving others. And I want to pray this prayer, Lord, even though it's a dangerous prayer, Lord, please use my life, use me and use my life to make a significant impact on this world for your kingdom. Use me so that I have a purpose for living. May my purpose for living be to serve you by serving others. And then when I'm done, Lord, I want to go to be with you in heaven for all of eternity. So from this day on, For me to live as Christ. Help that to be my life first too. For me to live as Christ. Help me to live up to that sentence and that statement. To look at my life from your perspective and to live for you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. It's Mal. Hopefully today you learned some new ways of looking at difficulties that will enable you to experience true happiness. Have a great Sunday. See ya.